I'm going to teach my way through our scripture text for today, so I'm going to just invite you to sit down, even though it's the reading of the gospel, don't tell Dana. Um, we're going to do things a little differently today. Um, I wanted to start off this um, morning by talking a little bit about Roe versus Wade. It's been a pretty intense uh, week. We witnessed yet another significant moment in the history of our country this week. Um, And once again, we were smacked in the face with culture wars and the staggeringly unhelpful binary framework that seems to permeate almost every single issue and cultural context that comes before us. This or that. Black or white, Democrat, Republican, pro-life, pro-choice. I happen to be a pro-choice pastor, but in my view, the pro-life, pro-choice is a false choice. I would like to think that we're all pro-life to some extent, and that the real issue is pro-choice or anti-choice. But even beyond that, There are probably more than just two perspectives about this. In fact, there are at least five that I can count, and probably more than that. We've got purists on either side of the spectrum, some that would say no abortion ever under any circumstances. On the other end, abortions anytime, anywhere, no matter what the circumstances. Folks kind of in the middle that see wisdom and problems with both. And then some that would be against abortion but don't want to criminalize folks for it. And then folks that generally support abortion rights but want to see abortion rates reduced. That's at least five perspectives right there, and there's probably a number of others somewhere woven in between. The conventional wisdom in our age seems to always want to criminalize everything. A punitive approach, a punitive response, lock them up, throw away the key, charge them a large fine, punitive, versus restorative, collaborative, problem-solving, things like that. It just seems beyond our grasp in so many of the issues that come before us these days. I did a, um, a talk on human sexuality at my alma mater, Greensboro College, uh, um, a number of years ago. And I put together a little timeline about faith and sexuality, and I wanted to share just a few of the entries that I put on the timeline. Um, because the Roe versus Wade decision, as you well know, came and was handed down in 1973. That was 49 years ago. And if we think about 1973 and the decade or so leading up to that moment, that was a lot of massive social change happening in a relatively short period of time. We had the U.S. Civil Rights Movement that was happening, you know, in all throughout the 60s. We had a number of key assassinations, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, just to name a couple. We had the Vietnam War that was happening, a war that didn't make any sense to anybody and saw folks getting killed over and over and over, and the folks that were getting killed who happened to be people of color would come back to the United States and be denied the rights (laughs) that they had been overseas fighting for. Then we had the... Um, women's liberation movement that also awoke during that time and, and, and saw some pretty significant gains. And, of course, 
in June of 1969, the thing that we celebrate every year during June, Pride, the Stonewall Riots happened in New York City. And that led to the LGBTQ rights movement, which we are still a part of today. And all of these movements that we've named are still um, in progress because all the rights and, 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 and ability to be free have not been realized in all of these things. And seemingly, we are moving in a direction that seems to be recalling some of those rights and freedoms. Not long after the, so, so 1969 was the Stonewall Riots, 1973 the Roe versus Wade decision was handed down, and then in 1979, the Moral Majority was founded by the Reverend Jerry Falwell in direct response to the Roe versus Wade decision as well as all of the other cultural changes that was happening during that time. And anytime we see any of my, my, uh, my colleagues who study sociology or maybe some of you can tell us that whenever there is a movement for progress, a movement that changes the societal fabric, the way we do things, there is almost always a pendulum swing in the opposite direction. And so we saw that again in 1979 with the founding of the Moral Majority in which the interests of small business folks, small government folks, those kind of folks, libertarians, got married with folks that happened to be pro-life, anti-gay, and they formed this coalition that is now what we understand to be the Republican Party. And so that, again, was a, a pendulum swing sort of in, towards the, the conservative end of the spectrum in response to so many different changes that were happening. And I think the same thing is happening now. I think we are seeing a lot of social change in a very short period of time with gains for LGBTQ folks, which we celebrate and we want to preserve. <laughs> um, the Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too, war, a pandemic for God's sake, lots of change. Our lives have changed so much. If we think about just three years ago, sitting in this very sanctuary, and now, post-pandemic, trying to kind of get back together, half of us are back, lots of us are online. You know, we, we, we've changed a lot just in the way we see the world. And so I, I think that what we're seeing, again, from a sociological perspective, is a pendulum swing in the opposite direction out of fear. Out of fear. Brian McLaren um, is uh, somebody that I, I read a lot of his stuff. He actually used to be an um, a, a evangelical white, white guy from Tennessee, I believe. Um, and he used to, uh, he was a part of the pro-life movement and was a pastor at a very large evangelical white Christian church. Um, and over the years, he has kind of changed his perspective a little bit. But he wrote a four-part uh, letter to his fellow white evangelical Christian siblings. Um, and in that letter, he offers a, a new framework by which to engage the conversation about abortion. And I wanted to share a couple of, of insights that he offers, which I've found to be really helpful. He says that instead of the, um, well, he offers, so he says that um, the, the, excuse me, I lost my place here. <clears throat> he says that instead of the harder and deeper work um, that, that, so that we have taken a punitive approach to this, right? Outlawing it. 
making people go to jail. But instead, what does it look like to do the harder and more difficult work to make abortions less and less necessary by looking at some of the causes and bothering to ask the questions of people's lives? What's going on in somebody's life that would make this a decision they would have to face? Perhaps that is a goal, making abortion less and less necessary. Maybe that's a goal that we actually could all agree on. I don't know. And focusing on the causes and conditions that lead to abortion. The truth be told is that since 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, abortions dropped to their lowest level since that decision during the Obama administration. Why? Because of the passage of the Affordable Care Act and folks having access to health care and resources to be able to make some of these decisions. And naturally, the abortion rate went down. Interesting. Didn't need a punitive answer to that. But again, this binary has caused us to get stuck. And our job as Christians, as followers of Jesus, now Jesus being the one who almost always turned conventional wisdom or the unquestioned norms of his time or the battle lines that we as humans draw, he turned all of those things on their head. And perhaps he calls us also to disregard some of those things and look and find a new and better way to engage our fellow siblings, to engage some of these different problems with eyes of Christ, to see things through a lens of love. Jesus calls us perhaps to see beyond the immediate and zoom out and see a much bigger picture, to relentlessly seek community and relationship, to be constantly on the lookout for common ground and the humanity in others to heal what has been harmed and transform suffering into strength and meaning. And frankly, this is hard work, especially when it comes to something like this. But ironically, that actually kind of leads us into the heart of our text this morning, which is kind of a complicated text. It comes for us from Luke uh, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. And it's a text that is um, complicated, as I mentioned. It's filled with symbolism, provocative language, exaggerated statements. But why? Why would Jesus give us some of these words? We're going to take a look at that here in just a second. Um, before, I, before I read the text, I want to, uh, some of you who have been uh, in uh, disciple Bible study with me over the years have known that I am in a lifelong crusade against biblical fundamentalism. It is not healthy, nor is it accurate. Uh, because when we are reading the language in this English translation of the Bible, which happens to be the New Revised Standard Version, turns out the text wasn't actually originally written in English. It was written in some other languages. And then somebody who was reading those old languages had to make some editorial decisions as they were moving it from this language to the other language because sometimes there aren't equivalent words between languages. And so somebody has to make a decision about which word to use, and sometimes that can tilt the meaning of a text. And I think that's just important for us to kind of keep in mind, not to throw it all out, but to engage it more deeply, you know, for ourselves, so that we can be thirsty for knowledge and expand and understand the fullest sense of what the text is telling us. So I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to go back through and kind of look at it a little more closely. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, 
here in this text, we're in chapter 9, verse 51. This is, even though we're only in chapter 9 and there's still several chapters to go, we're seeing Jesus begin to make his pivot towards Jerusalem. And what that means symbolically is the end of his human life. So he's been out in the countryside ministering in the cities and healing and preaching and sort of just out in the countryside. And he's making that pivot towards what is inevitably coming his way. And that is his death, ultimately, by the establishment. And so Jesus sent messengers ahead of him, and on their way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him because Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, a little background about that. How many of you all know what the Samaritans were? A few of you. There were a group of people who, back up a few centuries, um, when the Babylonians came and took over Jerusalem, and they shackled all the Jews, or most of the Jews, and marched them off into exile, and then systematically destroyed the temple, the most sacred thing in the Jewish tradition. Destroyed the whole thing, tore it to the ground. And they marched all the Jews off to exile, except there were some that were left behind. And then, to fill up some of the gaps of folks that were there before, the Babylonians brought in foreigners from other lands that were part of their empire. And those foreigners came and, and kind of created community with the Jews that were left behind, and they intermarried and kind of created a whole new group of people that are now known as the Samaritans. Now, when the Jews came back from exile, and they reacquainted themselves with the folks that were left behind that had kind of created this new group, there was some animosity there. They didn't really get along. They kind of, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans got mad and looked down on them back. And so centuries later, they still had this tension between people who ultimately were family members. <laughs> and so, because Jesus, being a Jew, was headed to Jerusalem, the Samaritans weren't having it, and they were offended by that alone. And so that's kind of where this, this comes from. And Jesus is not deterred by that. Just as we were talking about before, Jesus turning conventional wisdom and the conventional way that we see things and the way we've always done it largely ignores those things in the interest of oneness. And we're going to see that a little bit further here. So they did not receive him. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus said, no. <laughs> no, I don't want you to have fire come down from heaven to consume them. So Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this is kind of like um, folks that do Facebook activism. <laughs> Think they're really doing something by liking a photo or sharing a post. That's kind of, I think, what this person is saying. Oh, they got caught up in the moment. They were moved. They were excited. Yeah, whatever. I'll follow you wherever you go. But they hadn't really taken the time to think about what that means, that there's sacrifice involved, and that activism means putting ourselves on the line for something that we care about. And Jesus has to kind of check that person on that a little bit and check maybe some of us too. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But the person said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say, well, say farewell to those in my home and handle all of my affairs. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit 
for the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for all of us, the people and children of God. Thanks be to God. Now, as I mentioned, there are clearly some exaggerated statements in this, in this text. No one who looks back. Haven't we, haven't we all looked back? <laughs> I know I have with some regret at times, some disappointment, you know, some joy. But I think we all look back. And what's so, ra- what's so wrong with that? Caring for our families, especially a dying parent, isn't that something ideally that we would encourage and even celebrate? Handling our affairs, handling our jobs, you know, handling the, the things that put food on the table and all of our different logistics in our lives, isn't it a good idea to kind of tie up some loose ends, handle all that before taking on a new project? Seems like a good idea to me. And so the things that Jesus is asking us to leave behind are seemingly good things. It doesn't make sense unless we read this through the lens of Jesus as prophet. Now we see Jesus in a lot of different roles in the text. We see him as teacher, as healer, preacher, leader, savior. But in this text, I think it actually makes sense and helps us a little bit to see Jesus as a prophet, falling in the lineage of Elijah. And if we were to have read the Old Testament lesson for today, it talks about Elijah and Elisha and how Elijah ascended up into to heaven. And so there's a lot of parallels between those stories. So I invite you to maybe read that after church is over and just kind of examine that for yourself. But what do prophets do? They interpret the times and culture and society that they live in. They make provocative and exaggerated statements, all for the purpose of inspiring change. Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Samuel, all the others both in our own Judeo-Christian tradition as well as in other religious traditions around the world, they all have an experience of the divine. They've had some kind of glimpse of something beyond the veil. They've witnessed that, that veil sort of parts between the physical realm where we live here and the spiritual realm. And when they've seen that, when they've experienced that, it makes everything on this side of the veil seem very small, very relative. You know? And so I think that's kind of where Jesus is coming from. And, and, and when one experiences that, there's a true recognition that everything is passing away all the time. We are here for such a short period of time on this planet. And those who fully recognize this and have glimpsed at the absolute unconditional love, truth, and eternity of God. Well, once you see even a tiny glimpse of that, again, it makes everything on this side of the realm seem relative. And certainly our silly preoccupations and our small-mindedness and our, our drive to impose our will and our belief system on other people it just seems silly at that point. And Jesus throughout his life and ministry largely ignores the religious and cultural norms and instead tries to wake people up to our collective oneness, which we are largely missing in this conversation about abortion. In this text, Jesus singles out family and occupation as limiting factors. They are seemingly good things, handling our affairs, taking care of our families, but they keep us in our own world. The first question, at least that I used to ask when I would be trying to get to know somebody, is, 
what? What do you do? What do you do for a living? What's your job? You know, sort of as a way of just kind of contextualizing somebody. I try not to ask that question as much anymore because, you know, sometimes folks might be in between jobs or folks not, might not want to identify with the job that they do or whatever it is. But in America, capitalist, capital of the world, <laughs> our worth and our value and our identity is largely tied up in our job. I know it has been for me at times. I'm in a bit of a season of loss right now just with my change in my role here at St. Mark and the loss of that election and, you know, loss of a relationship and, you know, some other things. But just that sense of identity tied up in those external things. Um, when those things are taken away or changed, kind of causes a little bit of a, a disturbance. And certainly with our families, most people think the way that their families do. And for those of us that are part of the LGBTQ community, we've had to do a lot of work sometimes to separate ourselves and others, not just, not just this community, but, but many of us have had to kind of be jolted into a new way of thinking because we meet somebody new from a different faith or a different race or a different cultural background. And it causes us to huh, rethink what we may have learned, or what, the way our family sees. But if we don't have that opportunity to meet somebody different, a lot of times we'll just kind of go along with whatever it is our families say or do or think. And those circumstances, when, when, when limited family and occupation, our worldview can be small. And otherness becomes a threat. And again, I think that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. When Jesus says, follow me, notice he doesn't say worship me. He says, follow me. He's pointing to something beyond himself. He leads, leads us into new cities, new worlds, new religions, new ways of seeing and thinking. It's a fuller, more lived-out embodiment of love, not the feeling of love, although that may be present from time to time, but a new worldview of love. And so as we ponder on this text and reflect on ways that our own worldview and thinking may be limiting, lim the way that our own worldview and our thinking might be limiting us, may we allow the ever-present, ever-loving presence of God to guide us, to shepherd us, even provoke us into more fully loving God ourselves and our neighbor. We're going to have a lot of work to do over these next years. Um, in response to this decision. Wherever you fall in the belief system, um, there's a lot of work that's going to be ahead because things are going to change. And some of our other rights might be threatened. You know, we've already seen one of the justices say we're coming for LGBTQ rights, you know, contraception. <laughs> you know, is that really the best way for us to engage how we govern the land? Or is it perhaps a different, maybe better way to look at the context and be in conversation and be in relationship and be in collaboration with those around us to find ways to reduce suffering and reduce harm? I think that's what we're called to do as Christians. I think that's what Jesus is calling us beyond the immediate argument to something bigger. And it does take sacrifice. So can we see beyond what is familiar to us? What otherness can we befriend? What new worlds await us? Jesus calls us into the midst of all these things.
May it be so. In the name of the Creator and the Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen.